So if you missed the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Jonah. We're actually in Jonah chapter 4. It is the final chapter of Jonah, though we have one more week where we're going to look at Jonah, and we're going to do that in kind of like a panel discussion. The elders are going to come up here, and we're going to talk about the way that Jonah um, points to Jesus, and that's going to be next Sunday. That should be fun. Um, but if you've missed the last few weeks, what is Jonah all about? Jonah is a story about a prophet, or you could call him a missionary, who God wants to send to Israel's enemy, Assyria in a city called Nineveh. And Jonah, rather than willingly go, he runs the opposite direction. And he would basically rather die than be obedient to this cause. Um, he just doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want his enemies to know the kindness of God. He doesn't want his enemies to know the forgiveness of God. And so through the belly of a big fish, God brings Jonah to a place of repentance. And then Jonah willingly, if not half-heartedly, goes to Nineveh to tell them about God. And we saw last week that when Jonah gets to Nineveh, he preaches his sermon, which is less than enthusiastic, and the entire city repents. And we were ending last week with the last verse of chapter 3 with this kind of implied, unwritten question, well, how's Jonah going to react to the fact that Nineveh repents and God is looking at their repentance? And so what's going to happen? You know, I was thinking about Jonah, and I was thinking about the fact that if you were going to describe Jonah's characteristics, if you were going to describe Jonah's demeanor, if you were going to describe who Jonah is as a person in maybe four or five words or phrases, you know, what kinds of things would come to mind? And so I, I wrote down a couple things on my paper. I wrote uh, reluctant. I wrote repentant, like, like repentant. I wrote lazy because his sermon was pretty lame, um, and I wrote bitter, bitter. Those were the kind of the main words that I wrote to describe Jonah's characteristics, that Jonah to me seems like he's a product of bitterness and religion gone bad. Like he has some religious aspects to him. Not, not, religion isn't, like, I don't like when we say things like, well, religion is evil. It's not evil. Like Jesus was religious. You know, but religion can be corrupted and tarnished, and it can really be a club if used in the wrong way, right? Ritualistic, heartless religion is evil, but just spiritual things are not evil in and of themselves, nor are they good in and of themselves. But in Jonah, we see this product of bitterness and bad religion. Um, and we see it in his heart. And so we can guess how we think that Jonah is going to react to all of this. And as I, um, as I think about those words to describe Jonah, I would ask you, even if while I'm going through this, if something comes to your mind, think about what words you would use to describe you or what words maybe somebody else would use to describe you. You know, what would be the words, if we use words reluctant, repentant, lazy, bitter to describe Jonah, what would somebody write to describe you? And I have a purpose for that. Let's begin, actually, with the last verse of chapter 3, okay? When God saw what they did, their repentance, in other words, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster 
that he had said he would do to them, and he did it not, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is an interesting uh, verse, interesting couple sentences here. It's actually not very interesting in English, but it is interesting in Hebrew. And the reason it's interesting in Hebrew is because the word evil is used three times. And so basically, the way that it would be worded in, in Hebrew is something like this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the evil he had said he would do to them, but it was evil to Jonah exceedingly. Does that make sense? And so you have this word repetition that's happening here in the Hebrew. The idea is that the Ninevites repent of their evil. God relents of his evil deed. In other words, this disaster that he's going to do. And Jonah found God's relenting to be an evil act as opposed to pouring out his judgment. You guys just follow me? I know that was three evils. It was almost like doctor evil. It was so evil. Okay? And so Jonah is angry... Jonah's angry about the love of God. Jonah's angry about the grace of God. Jonah's angry about the mercy of God. Jonah was angry about the goodness of God. Have you ever met somebody who was like that? It's like they're angry about the love of God. I think um, we've been watching The Chosen, and probably a lot of you guys have been watching The Chosen or have seen episodes from The Chosen. When I look at the Pharisees, I feel like the Pharisees are a good example of someone who's angry about the goodness of God. It's like God is really good, and because God's really good, they want to protect him, so they're like angry that he's good. And it's, the chosen is kind of convicting, even though I know that it's an artistic rendition of the Gospels. Um, you know, the other, other week, Gene and I were watching it, and Jesus had just healed the woman who was bleeding, you know, and... Um, and Jesus heals the woman, and the Pharisees like, is she clean? And Jesus is like, she's clean now. And the Pharisees over here, and I just started laughing as soon as he did. I was like, that would have been me and Breton over the. <laughs> He's like, she's not clean till sundown. Right? <laughs> They're angry about the goodness of God, and I think we've all met people like that. I mean, we have to ask the question: if the gospel is good news. Why do so many Christians, and I use Christian as Christ followers. I know there's a lot of people who are Christian, but they're not really Christian. Like, they're Christian because they're not Buddhist, or they're Christian because they're not Muslim, but, like, that doesn't mean anything to them. But why are so many people who claim to be Christ followers so miserable about it? Why are they so miserable? Miserable? You would think that followers of Christ should be the happiest people on the planet. They should be the most carefree they should be the most loving, the most filled with joy, overflowing from our response of having received these things and now eager to pour them out because we're limitless recipients of God's goodness. Now, I, I lump myself into that. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a troll by nature, okay? Maybe a billy goat instead of the troll. I don't know. But the point is, I, I'm pointing at myself as well. But when we think about this, Jonah is angry about God's love. He's angry about God's forgiveness. The Ninevites and God both dropped their evil, but Jonah embraces his own evil. What a tragedy, if you really think about it. Verse 2. See, we already, we're already through one verse, guys. 
Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was getting my own country? In other words, O Lord, isn't this what I said was going to happen? That's exactly what he's saying. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Kill me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So I, we said what four words would we use to describe Jonah. We said, you know, repentant, reluctant, bitter, lazy. Well, we look at these are the words that God uses in Exodus 34, which we're going to look at in a moment. These are the words that Jonah uses, quoting God, to describe God. And how does God describe himself? Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You know, we have this idea here where prayer is built upon truth. I was reflecting on that this week. I said to Gina, you know, when you look at the prayers of the Bible, you realize the prayers of the Bible are super poetic and that they're built upon truth. And even in Jonah's prayer, and we'll look at this more next week, in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 of Jonah, he's just quoting all these different psalms. His prayer is built on truth. We have a friend. Um, his name is Daniel Henderson. He runs this prayer ministry and um, called Strategic Renewal. And one of the things that Daniel Henderson always says, is like one of his little, you know, catchy uh, phrases, is prayer should be scripture-fed, and spirit-led. Scripture-fed and spirit-led. And so essentially what he's saying is that when you pray, you pray what you know to be true about God. You pray because of what you know to be true about God, and because of that, you pray. And so if you don't think God is sovereign, then you're not going to pray at all, which is ironic because we pray, but then doubt his sovereignty. But why would we pray if he couldn't do anything about it? But anyway, so the, the point is we say God is good, and so we ask him for good things. We believe that God has power, so we ask him to intervene. And here is Jonah. What does Jonah know? Jonah knows that God is gracious. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is slow to anger. He knows that God's abounding in love. He knows that God relents from disaster in response to repentance. He knows this because this is exactly what God said to Moses after he relented from destroying the Israelites, God said this in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses. He's going to show him his glory. And he proclaims himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who God is. That's who God is. That's his essence. Think about it, that when God had the opportunity to succinctly summarize his essence, those are the words he picked. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Now, I we know those are all true because we've, you know, we were like we're in a church 
I mean, it's a church and a school, but it's a church, right? It's not a church and a bar anymore, okay? And so we know that this is what God says about himself. But if you think about it, even for me and for you, we probably would have chosen different words if we hadn't, like, read in advance that this is what we were supposed to say. Like, we would have picked things like all-powerful, all-knowing. You know, we would have gone with the three omnis. You know what I mean? That's what we would have done, most people, I don't think slow to anger would have made my list. Would it have made yours? Probably not. But these are the words that God uses to describe himself. He truly is unique, very different. Now, Jonah knows Exodus 34. He's, he quotes it. He knows this. He's quick to pray in response to this, right? He's quick to pray in response to what he knows about God. He knows this about God, so he's going to pray in response to it. Matter of fact, when he's in the belly of, a, of the fish, he's praying in response to who he knows God to be, surely and securely. That's why he prays that way. But here... Now that there's other people involved, instead of these truths bringing him to worship and intercession, they bring him to anger. What's the disconnect? Simply because the recipient of grace and mercy has changed, all of a sudden now Jonah's a different person. That's because bitterness tampers with your prayer life. Bitterness tampers with your prayer life. See, Jonah was all about praying these things when it benefited him, not so much when he's praying for them, which we can relate to, right? Because frequently you probably ask God to bless you, but you probably not as frequently ask God to bless whatever presidential candidate you don't like, right? It's very easy for us to pray for ourselves. God bless me, give me good things. Why did you give my idiot friend a raise, right? He didn't even deserve it. I'm such a better worker. You know, that's what we do if we're honest with ourselves. It's okay. You can admit it. Alexa's in your house. She tells me all these things, okay? I saw your TikTok. I know what you're thinking because I'm you. You know, if you get mad when God gives good gifts to other people, you know exactly what I'm referring to here. So what does this all reveal about God? This just this little exchange, well, God stays the same. Unlike Jonah, who's remarkably fickle, unlike us, we are remarkably fickle, God stays the same. He was merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting of disaster to Jonah. He was merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of disaster to the sailors. He's merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, relenting in disaster to the Ninevites. God stays the same yesterday, today, forever. And amazingly, God's response to sin is always grace because he's slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He's got a long fuse. Long-suffering. I love that translation. He suffers long before he acts. That's what patience is. That's what patience means. God's response to sin is grace. Grace is why he sent Jonah in the first place. 
Grace is why he rescued him by swallowing him with a fish. Grace is his response to the sailors. Grace is his response to the Ninevites. Grace is even his response right now because after Jonah basically tells God off, God's response is, are you right to be angry? Instead of being like, excuse me, (laughs) what'd you just say? Do you realize I could crush you like a worm? Okay, that's not what he does. He's gracious. What does this reveal about Jonah? Well, God may be unchanging. We are fickle. We love being forgiven. Don't like forgiving other people. We like receiving mercy. Don't like being merciful. We like receiving grace. Don't like giving it out. And that shows an important reality, which is really the whole point of the sermon, so pay attention, okay? This is the reality. If you get anything and you run with it, run with this. You can know God. You can be acquainted with God. You can experience the miraculous from God and not be changed at all. And that should terrify you. That's Jonah. Jonah knew God. And we might be tempted to say, yes, but it was just in his head. It wasn't. No, no, no. Jonah was acquainted with God. He'd experienced God. He didn't just have a head knowledge. He had an experiential knowledge. He had a familiarity with God. It was his familiarity with God which said, that's why I didn't want to go, because I know you. And he experienced the miraculous from God, but it didn't change who he was. Disturbing. Do you know God? Yeah, I grew up in Sunday school. I went to CCD. You know, I've been in church my whole life. I read my Bible. Oh, are you familiar with God? Yes. I'm always talking to God. I'm always reading the Word. I'm always listening to podcasts. That's great. Have you seen God do things in your life? Absolutely. There was a time when I prayed, and He just really saved me from such and such situation. That's great. Are you changing? Are you different today than you were six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Or are you the same grouchy curmudgeon you've always been? Ask your kids. Are you changing? Or are you deluding yourself? Does your knowledge and acquaintance with God stop at your head? Like he's a history book to read? Like he's a documentary to be acquainted with? Or are you being transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind as his Holy Spirit works? Are you guys following me? Yes? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city. He made a little booth for himself there. He was going to sell lemonade. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant And it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a little shade for his little heady to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Um, This section is the climax of the story. Um, The reason it's the climax of the story is literarily, um, which is a fancy term that means if you looked at it from a literature perspective, literarily, 
it's the only part of Jonah that doesn't have a literary parallel. And this is what I mean by that. You have Jonah being commissioned in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah being recommissioned in the first part of Jonah chapter 3. You have Jonah's repentance in Jonah chapter 2. You have the Ninevites' repentance in the second half of chapter uh, 3. You have Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. You have Jonah's prayer in chapter 4. And this section is the only section that doesn't have a parallel. And so it's like a pyramid that's building, and this is the focus. So Jonah goes out of the city hoping that God is going to change his mind. That's what he's doing. He went out to see what was what. So he goes, he makes a little booth, he sits down, and he's just sitting there waiting for God to rain fire down. He's waiting for the, he's waiting for the fire, okay? He's waiting for God to bring that heat because we know earlier the word that God uses is supposed to make us hearken back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so here he is waiting for God to start bringing those flaming fireballs from heaven. But as he's waiting for the heat from God, the heat of the day starts pounding on top of his head. This is all just more literary jokes, okay? The heat of the day reflects and points to his own mood. He's waiting for the fire, but now he's getting sunburned. And what does God do? Well, God, I'll tell you what about God. I know it. He's gracious. He's um, merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he loves relenting from disaster. And so what he does is he makes a plant grow and give him shade. Why does God do that? Because that's who he is. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind that came across the desert and is hitting him in the face. And the sun beat down on his head so that he was faint. And he asked God that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's what he said. Now, because God is good, he wants Jonah to grow. He wants Jonah to grow. See, God is far more concerned with making you like Christ than what he's going to do through you. He wants to make you like Jesus. Now, because God is good, he wants Jonah to grow. He wants him to mature. He wants him to become more like the image bearer that he's supposed to be. And he loves us the way that we are, but he loves us too much to keep us there And because he's the perfect parent. And so what God does is God appoints a worm, and the worm comes and eats the plant. The plant withers and dies, and then God appoints a wind, and the wind blows, and it hits him in the face, and the sun comes down, and it tenderizes his poor little head. And once again, Jonah throws a temper tantrum. He says, I'd rather die. Now, I want to point out that this is the third time that Jonah has had these kinds of emotions. He'd rather die with the fish. He'd rather die when save the Ninevites. He'd rather die. And so in Jonah's perspective, he's thinking, look, I was dead in the fish. It wasn't that bad. I'd rather be dead in that fish than you save the Ninevites, and I'd rather be dead than deal with my poor, withering plant. 
And so God repeats his question to Jonah a second time. He said the same question earlier in the chapter, and he repeats it. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? To which Jonah emphatically says, yes, kill me. Why would a person act like this? It's bitterness. Bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die, right? Jonah knows all about God's grace. He knows all about God's mercy. He knows all about these things, but it hasn't changed his life. He's consumed by hate. He's consumed by anger. He's got rot in his soul. But all along, God has been setting Jonah up for the perfect object lesson because he's now going to use Jonah to teach him something and to teach us as well. And so God moves in for the firm but gentle rebuke. And this is what he said. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now you're thinking, cattle. Let me explain. So Jonah indeed expresses concern over the plant perishing, but he doesn't care about the 120,000 people over in Nineveh who are dying. This is a myopic, you know, he's focusing on a very small thing. It's a very myopic view of life. It's kind of like saying, I'm really upset about my rose bushes while your neighbor's house is burning to the ground. Or it's when we think, I, not to push on it too much, but when you think about the fact that there are 270 churches in Cape May County, and then there's a few billion people who have no access to the gospel in the 1040 window, it's a myopic view of life, right? It's just here, just now, write this, and it's, I'm not viewing the rest of things. Well, God points out Jonah, they don't know their right hand from the left, and that's a, a spiritual idiom. Matter of fact, the um, New Living Translation accurately helps us out there, and it translates it as living in spiritual darkness. These, all these people are living in spiritual darkness. In other words, they're spiritually ignorant. It's not their fault that they're like this because they're blinded by the enemy. They don't know any better. Nobody's ever told them before you came, and you gave the lamest sermon on the planet, Jonah. That's basically what God is implying. And then he brings up the cattle. And I think what he's doing is he's poking fun at Jonah using his own logic against him. And so let me rephrase this in the Bill non-inspired version. Jonah, I am so glad to see that you have a heart after all. I was beginning to worry. So the fact that you're upset about this plant is a good sign. Now, I know you don't care about these Ninevites, despite the fact that they're spiritually destitute. But do you care for the cattle? I mean, you cared for the plant, Jonah, so can I pardon the city for the sake of the cows? That's essentially what God is saying to Jonah. Does that make sense? So Jonah's argument about the plant, God twists it upside down, and he says, I'll save it for the cattle. I know how much of an animal and plant lover you are. And that's the end of the book. What does this teach us about God? 
What does it teach us about God? Okay, one, it teaches us that God is in control. If you look throughout the book, I think it's six times. I forgot to write it down. God appointed a fish. God appointed a wind. God appointed a worm. God appointed the sun. God appointed a plant. God appoints, 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 appoints. And the point is that God's hand is at work in all the events, the good and the bad, okay? The vine, for example, was a good, was a good thing. The vine was a good thing. It's not a good thing if this runs out of batteries. The vine was a good thing, okay? It gave shade to Jonah's head, and so God appointed that. But it also says that God appointed the worm, all right? But the worm was a cause for suffering and loss, but God appointed it. It also said that God appointed the east wind, and the sun to rain down discomfort and pain on him. Now, this is not in our normal framework, but you have to realize that God appointed both these things, and in our human view, we would say one good, one bad, right? But in God's perspective, it doesn't look that way, because not only is God in control, but God is gracious and merciful, and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and quick to relent of disaster. And so even in those bad things, God's purpose is what? Good. See, this is why human beings, when they ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and they tried to define good and evil, we can't. Because these things, in our view, look evil. And how I got sunburned. That's a product of the fall. You know, this kind of idea. And here, God has a good purpose in the sunburn to make Jonah more like Jesus or more like himself as an image bearer. See, the same thing is true of us. We have vine times and we have worm times, and both are used by a gracious, merciful, slow to anger, a loving God to change and mature our character so we become more like the person he wants us to be. Does that make sense? God wants us to become like him. He doesn't just want us to know him or to know about him or to experience a miracle of the fish and the loaves. No, he wants us to become like him, which is the whole concept of being an image bearer that was destroyed. And then Jesus goes and he says, now I send you out as image bearers and we're made more like Christ. Because God is in control and because he's gracious and merciful, God can use the good and the bad to accomplish loving purposes. That's unique to him. Third thing is this, God cares for people who don't deserve it. Ninevites didn't deserve it. Sailors didn't deserve it. Jonah didn't deserve it. No one deserves it. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, when we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us. God is in the business of loving, unlovable people. It's who he is. He's abundant in love. So what does this teach us about mankind? Well, one, spiritually speaking, we don't know our right hand from our left hand. I'm going to read this from the ESV Gospel Transformation Commentary. 
It says, people who do not know their right hand from their their left hand have lost their moral compass and will soon lose their way and become hopelessly lost. God's pity is drawn out by the moral bankruptcy of the Ninevites. The Bible says that every one of us is born blind, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, bound, John 8.34, and dead, Ephesians 2.1. But the good news is that he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins, Colossians 1.13-14. So spiritually speaking, We are just as ignorant as the Ninevites until God opens our eyes. And the thing that I want you to get, this final piece, is this. Just because you know these things, who God is, what he's done, he grew up in church, just because you know these things doesn't mean you've allowed God to change you. This was Jonah's issue. God saw the moral bankruptcy of the Ninevites, and he responds with grace. Jonah, who is supposed to be made in the image of that God, when he saw the moral bankruptcy of the Ninevites, he responds with harshness and condemnation. He despised the evil people of Nineveh. He felt they deserved destruction. He identified them as sinners and me as fine. And so the question is, what do we do about these realities? What do we do about the things that we've learned in the book of Jonah? And just real quick, three things. The, one, the first one is this. Be aware of who God is as revealed in the Word of God. Be aware of who God is as revealed in the Word of God. Um, as it's not a unique conversation to have with people when they tell you that the reason they don't want to be a Christian is because they grew up going to church and they had an oppressive religious family and their parents made them go to CCD and that all the priests ever talked about was money and that guy was a child molester. And, and I mean, that's what people say. Well, how come you're interested in Christ? Well, because church is stupid. Well, I get that, but I didn't ask, you know, why you don't like church. I ask, how come you're not interested in Christ? You need to be aware of who God is as revealed in the Word of God, not as revealed in culture, not as revealed in the media, not as revealed in religion, as revealed in the Bible. The second thing is this. Oh, and by the way, what is he? He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and quick to relent of disaster. You also need to be aware of who you are. Not as revealed by the media, which is a giant algorithm for telling you what you want to hear, but what the Bible says about you. What does the Bible say about us? That we don't know our right hand from our left hand. That spiritually we are, what were the three words? Blind, bound, and dead. Spiritually dead in our sins without Christ, desperate for salvation. Or if you're a follower of Christ who's received his forgiveness, not on a basis of what you've done, but because of his faithfulness, then you're a sinner saved by grace, not because of anything you did, but despite everything you've done. And then you need to, the the third and final thing, 
is not just know those things, but allow those things to change you. To change you. By the way, that's why I love the Discovery Bible Study. Because you read the Bible and you say, what does this teach about God? What does it teach about people? How should I respond? It's really the core of it, isn't it? So the question is really, what is God trying to say to you through the story of Jonah? You know, where are you on your spiritual journey, and what is God telling you? Maybe He's telling you to respond to His grace. Maybe He's telling you to receive His forgiveness today for the first time and stop hiding behind the excuse that you had a bad experience at church 30 years ago. No one's asking you to become the next pope. We're asking you if you are ready to bend the knee to King Jesus and be forgiven. That's the question. Maybe he's telling you to show love to someone you don't want to love. But he who's been forgiven of much loves much. Maybe he's reminding you of how precious you are to him and how kind he is, how gracious he is, and how he wants you to rest in that love. Ask him and he'll reveal it to you. I know that for me, as I was praying, saying, Lord, what do you want me to hear? I was surprised. What I felt like the Lord wanted me to hear is, Bill, I am slow to anger with you. And that really struck me because I am quick to beat myself up for everything I do wrong. And it made me realize, Bill, you might beat yourself up, but I'm slow to anger. What a comforting glass of cool water when your soul is weary. Let's pray, guys. Jesus is always better. Father God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, even now as we sing this final song, as we reflect in the final moments, Lord, about who you are, what you've done, and how you're better than anything. You're better than life. And Lord, I pray that you would give people clarity in their minds, in their hearts, in their souls, so that they would know what you're saying to them through Jonah by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.